0: Welcome to this week's episode of reno My name is Connor McWibby. I'm your host. Thank you for joining me today. It's also my birthday, so thanks for celebrating it with me. This week on the show, I am welcoming Manuel Medeiros, who works for the Northern Nevada International Center in translation and interpretation. The Northern Nevada International Center also does refugee resettlement, exchange programs, a lot of global engagement stuff that is really important Manuel is also one of the hosts of the new NNIC podcast, Diplo Chats. On this episode, we talk about what the Northern Nevada International Center does, the important work that they do in making Reno a welcoming place for refugee communities. And we talk about podcasting, about Diplo Chats and Renoites and different podcast formats. Really great conversation, and I was very glad to have him on the show. This week's episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia. DJ Trivia is a super fun way to spend a couple hours on one of the weeknights. We have games at local bars and restaurants. It's free to play. There's prizes to be won. It's a ton of fun. We have restaurants, bars, different hosts. So find a bar or restaurant near you. Find a host that you like. Come on and play. I host at several different venues in town. You can find the entire list at DJTriviaNevada.com. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is the best local news source. They're covering things that no one else is. It is the only local independent news organization in the city. So check out This Is Reno. Go to thisisreno.com. You can also subscribe to their newsletter or follow them on social media. It really is the best way to stay in the loop on what is going on in town. That's thisisreno.com. And now this week's guest, Manuel Madero's. Manuel Medeiros, welcome to Renoites. Thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. This is extremely exciting for me to be here with you. I have heard amazing things about your podcast, and I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you.
0: Yeah, welcome. So you work at the Northern Nevada International Center, which is involved in translation, and you're in charge of the Language Bank, which is translation and interpretation services. Also, there's refugee resettlement, exchange programs, Can you tell me a little bit about what the Northern Nevada International Center is? Just kind of outline what those services and programs are, real quickly, and then we can kind of delve into what you do in each of those areas.
1: Basically, we foster essentially a better understanding between people through our public diplomacy programs. We have, you mentioned the Language Bank and cultural projects and foreign policy forums. We are extremely invested and global affairs, if you will, here in the state. We're very engaged with exchange programs of people that have come from all over the world to come to Northern Nevada to visit us, and they each focus on various specific projects or themes, and I can go a little more in detail later. But we are so fortunate to be a part of this community. we actually been in in place for over 20 years of being part of this great community of ours. And we essentially started, there was a lot of gaps, obviously, in diversity here. Now, through a great effort from many sectors, diversity has actually exploded in the the most recent years. And we're benefiting, all of us, all of us as a community, we all benefit from immigrants uh, in many, many ways. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. You said Northern Nevada International Center has been around for 20 or so years. I always associate you guys with the refugee resettlement stuff because I think that's some of the most visible work that you do or it gets reported on the most. But your focus there is the language bank and the translation uh, interpretation services. So let's start there. Can you tell me a little bit about what those services are, who you provide them for, uh, for people who are just not familiar with translation or interpretation in general? Can you talk about what that is and how you're involved in it?
1: Yeah, so I want to answer that question. But, uh, you know, our, our slogan just really quickly for the Northern Nevada International Center is leading Nevada's global engagement. And, and that's essentially what we do is engage the public and everyone who's involved with us in many, many ways, whether it's volunteering or interpreting for the language bank. Uh, but we want, obviously, everyone to be engaged. Anyway, to answer your question, so I am in charge. My, my title is language access specialist and refugee youth program supervisor, and the language access uh, part of it is essentially my work with the Language Bank, and the Language Bank has actually been uh, about, about 20 years now, and we've been here in this community providing interpretation and translation services, and how that works, we have interpreting sort of systems or technology that we provide to our clients, so we have interpretations via, over the phone, about 200 plus languages that we provide to our clients. We have about 15 plus languages in video remote technology, including American Sign Language. And we also provide translation services as well, over 100 languages. And We provide trainings for interpreters so that they actually have a place uh, so that they can train and further their skills, as an example, maybe provide certification opportunities with our partners uh, throughout the state. And we also are in a position to empower and educate professionals, whether it's judges, attorneys, nurses, or doctors, in the importance of having and incorporating a professional interpreter. And that is vital because a lot of times people think that it's just a person that they found across the street or something and they become interpreters. No, these people have a lot of knowledge, linguistic knowledge, cultural knowledge. And they essentially, what I like to coin the term, they essentially become cultural brokers. And cultural brokers is those that are able to communicate to the professionals, also to the clients and vice versa. And that's obviously something that we are constantly communicating about and educating people like, say, hey, you know, th- th- this is our chance. But we use interpreters with our refugee population as well. You know, our refugees benefit from having high quality interpreters that we provide, including the systems that we have in place.
0: Mm-hmm. I was thinking before we got on this call about kind of the difference between interpreting professionally, someone who has that training background. And you mentioned it briefly, kind of what goes into the difference between just having a friend of yours who's bilingual kind of translate something for you and being an interpreter who is trained. And it sounds like part of that is cultural understanding and being able to interpret in a way that is culturally sensitive and and understands where both parties are coming from. So, can you talk a little bit more about what that training might entail? Like, what makes the difference between a interpreter who really knows what they're doing and is able to do that as a job versus just a person who is bilingual? Because there's plenty of people who are bilingual, but they're not by any means, uh, you know, necessarily capable interpreters.
1: Right. And I'm glad you asked that question, and and I wanted to just sort of provide. Uh, A moment uh, so people understand the difference between interpreting and translating. Because you probably have heard lately through the news about Afghan translators. And that's kind of the wrong term. Those individuals, they could be translating documents. So the translation is document word translation. Okay. That's what it is. And then interpretation is the uh, verbal communication. American Sign Language being nonverbal, right? It's still considered interpreting. But anyway, so I wanted to provide that because a lot of times there is this confusion and I'll, I get a lot of calls here at the Language Bank and like, could you provide a translator? I'm like, oh, okay, so you need a document translator. They're like, no, I need a, a an actual person. I'm like, oh, so you need an interpreter. And I can understand because back in the day, you know, translate translator was both, right? But nowadays they... Are different and they've been different for many, many years. But anyway, to, to your question, there's a lot that a certified interpreter has to go through, especially in the medical interpretation. You have to have a 40-hour prerequisite, sort of understanding of ethics, understanding of the language and master that 40 hours. And then you pass this 40 hours and you it's a course. And then after that course, you move on where you could have Uh, oral, and written exam. Now, the interesting thing is that not every, and that includes for interpreting and translating, not every language is certifiable. Okay, so when you hear the word certified, many languages do not have the certification in this country. And I can go on to tell you which ones are those, but it it, it changes frequently because in the medical industry, they might have a few languages that are certifiable, but then in the court and legal Profession, those languages or one or two of those languages that are in the medical certifiable are not in the court and legal. So it's kind of like people have to do their homework. There's two entities across the country that certify uh, medical interpreters, one being CCHI. Another one is the American uh, Medical Board that certifies also medical interpreters. So there's different kinds of certifications. And then when you take actually the 40-hour prerequisite that I mentioned, part of the uh, medical interpreting, when you take that 40-hour under the ACA American Care Act, you're actually a qualified interpreter. And actually legally, you can actually uh, get hired as an interpreter between the time that you are qualified and between the time that you are actually certified, Mm -hmm. which is a cool, cool deal. Uh, and interpreters are, it's an v- extremely important and well-regarded profession. Institutions or even uh, places of business could have bilingual individuals. There's no harm to that. Um, but, you know, like, would you would you uh, hire a friend that is uh, um, a doctor to fix your car? Yeah, probably not. You know, right. Yeah, probably not, right? So you would do the same thing with an interpreter. So when when you're hiring an interpreter, you're hiring them because they're obviously extremely qualified in, in, in linguists, and they're actually professionals. And it's a profession. It's a respected profession across this country and many parts of the world. And they're very well regarded and they're important. I mean, look what happened with all, all this uh, SIVs or uh, special immigrant visas that are being given to Afghan interpreters. They're well regarded a- across the military world because they're very important parts of the diplomacy of whatever's going on in that country and communication, they're vital Mm -hmm. to that. And and many times what we see in the medical world, we see a lot of family members bringing in their kids or bringing in family members. I know that sounds innocent, but it's sort of a no-no. And the reason it's a no-no, pretend you have a 10 year old and you are the patient and the doctor has to tell you that you have cancer right? So why would you put your kid, they already been through this drama, right? With the whole entire illness. Now you're exposing them to a different new environment where the doctor is telling you that she might pass away or he might pass away. And now the kid is put in a position where he has to communicate that. Mm. And let me tell you, this is the law. If your place of business, and I'm talking about medical, is receiving federal funds through Medicaid-Medicare, you are obligated to provide an interpreter for your clients. You have to provide an interpreter. Now, many people don't do that. They can provide them in different methods, like the ones we talked about, whether it's over the phone, video remote, et cetera. So that can be done, but they have to provide that. If they're receiving federal funds, they have to provide an interpreter
0: who's generally going into this field of interpretation and how are you finding those people what is the what's that like here in Reno first of all and then also you mentioned technology and remote things like that so i also have to wonder if a lot of this interpretation is being done via technology by phone by video chat whatever how does northern nevada international center integrate those technologies into the work that you do in translation and interpretation
1: Let's touch on the, the process on how we vet people to become interpreters. There's various factors that we take, and this is when I say we, I'm referring to the language bank. Other companies have different methods, different procedures, but we actually need to know uh, if they have had any type of experience interpreting. And if they have, how have they actually done that and interpreting? If they don't have it, are they bilingual? And are they bilingual because they came from that specific country? And that's a bonus. If they come from that specific country, then those individuals have a more advantage because they are able to obviously connect and they're well, very well connected to their culture. And that's vital to, to the work, and especially in communication. So we make sure that those people, and, and all of our interpreters, by the way, are from those specific countries. It's not like when you go to your Spanish class and you learn Spanish in school here, um, which is another point that a lot of times people don't understand. And we want to advocate for schools, universities, etc., to have a bilingual system, a place where people do learn various languages. But at the same time, if those individuals who learn the language and they many of them do master it. If they master that language uh, or get a minor in translation, let's say through the University of Nevada, Reno, or anywhere else, they have a place where that minor is going to be applied. And many places don't have a system or in their companies. It looks great on a resume when you come out of uh, a college or the university and it says a minor in translation. Wow, that looks good. But then when you go work, you're really not putting that in practice. I mean, all that money in all those years kind of, they're not wasted. It's just, it's just not used or utilized as much as you would think it would. So we sort of are that resource. So when it comes to that, our interpreters are not college students, as an example. They're not for many reasons, just because they haven't had that uh, seasoned training, linguistic training, cultural training, understanding. And not to say that there's somebody out there listening who does. And if you do contact me because we're looking for you. In essence, what we're actually looking is people who are experts in their culture and linguists and they have had some kind of training and they haven't had that training, we can also provide that training for them. And that's why I mentioned the CCHI as an example or the Administrative Office of the Courts because those places, they might have courses, they might have webinars, they might have places where you can actually begin that process of getting really acquainted. And like any profession you need to polish it you need to you know build it you need to create it and actually practice it all the time we've been fortunate to have very qualified extremely qualified interpreters and and remember I said qualified because many of our interpreters are not certified and not because they uh, are not or they can't it's because the language itself might not be certifiable especially the languages like what we provide to our refugees which is Swahili and we have uh, Dari. We also have Arabic, right? Arabic is becoming more a language that is being certified mm. or certified, especially in the translation. If you work for the um, language bank, you're contracted. You're not a volunteer. You could be a volunteer for our families, and that's a sort of different sector. But to be an interpreter, you are essentially contracted and you get paid, which is good. Mm-hmm. But you have to have all those qualifications and have all the all these things in place.
0: Mm-hmm. So on the technology stuff, I know that the ability of technology to connect people when they don't live in the same place is pretty valuable. And I would think if you're using technology for these translation or interpretation services already, is there also outreach to... Be able to find interpreters who don't live in northern Nevada, but are willing to you know, remotely help. Is that part of the, the program as well to include people that are not actually here physically in northern Nevada?
1: So one of the advantage. Uh, OK, so we provide uh, like I mentioned earlier, we provide interpretations through our video remote technology as well as our over the phone technology. Those are accessible on demand to our clients. So if they ever want to you know, contact people in Japan or something, they can have a Japanese interpreter on the phone. Also, too, if there's a specific need for a specific interpreter for a specific industry, then we can go outside of that on demand technology and contract interpreters directly to your point, whether it's remotely or over the phone. We can do that as well remotely. So if, let's say you're an engineer and you have a very specific need for engineering or, or that interpreter to have good understanding or knowledge in engineering terms, then we can hire somebody specifically that is able to be contracted to be an interpreter. So they the client would contract us and then we would essentially contract the interpreter. Also, we get a lot of uh, requests that we would have to contract directly through like the courts. The courts have uh, very specific needs, not only for the the legal interpretations, but also they are looking for a specific language. We have a language right now that's been requested. Quiche is a language spoken in Guatemala, and that's from uh, native uh, people in Guatemala. So we're providing that very specific language to one of the courts here in Nevada. So, as an example, or even Tagalo, we have a huge Filipino population throughout the state. But again, just because we have the population doesn't mean we have the qualified people to be interpreters, right? And many people, uh, many of those uh, persons, or it used to be, I don't hear it as much, but I know that uh, a lot of in person, when you show up in person, a lot of in person interpreters kind of feel there's a little threat or they feel threatened by video technology. Mm-hmm or over the phone just because they believe that their their services might not be used as much. I don't disagree with that, but I add that I add more to that point because there's an advantage because those people who are on the other side they're human beings. It's not like you hear a robot. Mm. So everyone has a place just like any industry whether you're working from home or not and if you choose to be an interpreter and you and remote Interpreting is great if you uh, have a family and you want to be home or if, you know, there's uh, COVID concerns, right, and you choose to be home. There's a benefit to providing this technology and having this technology available, even to our in-person interpreters. Although there is a rich richness to being an in-person interpreter, just because you are able to uh, feel the environment, get a good sense of what's going on, you see people's expressions, right? And that's critical to interpreting because, and even with American Sign Language, as you can imagine, right, their expressions are extremely important. So with interpreting, it's sort of the same thing because you're feeling the energy from other people. You see their reaction. You see their – so if they're, you know, doing something with their eyes or something, you kind of think, okay, maybe that person is confused and you can ask for clarification as an interpreter, so anyway, so there's there's an ad, definitely an advantage, and I'm not disregarding the concerns about being threatened by technology, but I think there is a little bit of both. But I think at the end of the day, uh, most interpreters that I know of do feel that technology provides a good advantage. It's a very important form to have still, even even if in-person is what we would. Uh, suggest for people to actually tap into. We want we want people to ask for in-person interpreters, if available, obviously. But for other languages, we don't, the advantage is having that technology. One of the biggest reasons why we wanted to incorporate technology as part of our services is because I personally got tired of not providing the service. You know, when we would get requests and say we need a Tagalog interpreter and I don't have a Tagalog in-person interpreter, then I would have to call and say, sorry, we don't have it. And I would feel horrible. And the advantage of actually having on-demand uh, right, interpreter is that those people who are receiving the services, thats for me, that's the most important. So if those people who need those services or linguistic services, they're, at the end of the day, will not be without communication or, or will not be without understanding what's at stake. Because that's that's kind of my concern. I don't want to leave anybody without having questions about their well-being, their health, their family member, their somebody might be in prison, you know, or, or their case or trial. You know, I don't want anybody going without having the right tools to understand the process. And there's an advantage yet again for providing services on demand so people can actually tap into an interpreter as they need it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you also just about kind of multilingualism in general in America, because I know that there are areas with big multilingual populations or areas that have largely Spanish speaking only populations. So there's a lot of government documents that are in multiple languages. And I know on your most recent episode of the podcast that you guys are doing at the Northern Nevada International Center, DiploChats, that you had a guest talking about disaster preparedness and kind of what goes into making sure that information is available in the languages that are most common in any area, in addition to English. So can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, government documentation or like public information being provided in multiple languages, not necessarily what you're doing at the International Center, but just more broadly around availability of documents and information in multiple languages where that's necessary?
1: Right, and I think the key here Connor, and I'm so glad you're asking because the key here is understanding uh, and providing information that people understand, and also the communication portion. I think it's very important for you as the cl- I mean, excuse me, the provider, whether it could be the DMV one day or it could be someone else, but for you to know that you want people to really understand what they're getting into whether it's a legal document or, or they're signing off on a house. I don't know. It could be multiple, multiple things. I think there's a benefit of communicating the right thing to people and, and in their own language so they really, truly understand. And there's value to that. And yeah, you might hear people out there saying, oh, well, why do we have to translate every document into English? Why can't they learn, right, the language? Sure, we want people to learn. But a lot of times what we find is that people understand, and that's a keyword, understand better in their own language. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, having linguistic skills or providing information in different languages benefits a company. They might sell more products. So don't think of like, when you think of like, well, should welfare, you know, translate documents into various languages? Yeah, I would hope they would, that would be fantastic. But a person that might disagree with that, think of a company. Let's pretend welfare is a company. W- welfare needs to sell a product. And obviously there's an advantage to having those documents translated into the different languages because the economy sort of demands that. Anyway, so so yeah, so documents are are critical to to be translated and in those efforts. I think those are very, very important. You mentioned that project that we actually did with the emergency response project, multilingual and information and warning information project actually was a five language uh, project that we did with uh, emergency, the regional emergency operations center with Washoe County. And yeah, we had Kelly uh, Chiria uh, talk to us about the important work that the Northern Nevada International Center provided and the services we provided and we continue to actually do with emergency response We want to save lives. So don't think of documents. Think of saving lives. Don't think of, well, welfare should not translate that. No, think about the important work that welfare does, and we want people to have an understanding of what that is. So in this case, with uh, emergency response, we wanted to have the right communication or information what to do in case of a disaster. That's critical. We want to save lives. We want people to be protected. It doesn't matter where you come from, what places of, if you don't speak English or you speak English or you speak a different language. No, it doesn't matter about that. We want to save lives, period. And many people I mentioned in the podcast and Diplo Chats, what we learned in this project that many people don't react to emergencies or alerts because they feel this country is already safe. And it makes sense. Because a lot of people move here for that reason. They want to feel safe. They want to feel uh, that they're needed, they're wanted, they're cared for. And so a lot of people do that. And so that's what we learned through this project. But we did a five-language project, and and it was extremely important to do this. It it was very vital, and we continued to work. We actually did the first Spanish alert system in the state and the country, actually. It's an award-winning project. I was corrected by Kelly. She's like, Manuel, you have to say award-winning project. (laughs) And it was an award-winning project. We actually won an award because of the significance and the importance it had. And one of the um, populations that at the very beginning wasn't considered, and I advocated to be considered, was American Sign Language. Uh, Our deaf community are extremely vital to Nevada and to this country. And there's a small population of them. But to me, it wasn't the numbers. Again, what is the key? And the whole goal was to keep everyone safe. So if we're able to provide them information as well, when we you, you do the argument about they should learn English or the, or people should do No, it's like we need to take care of each other. That's the point. We provide our services because we want people to have an understanding and because we care about them. And that's the end of mm-hmm. everything else. You know, that's the important thing.
0: Yeah. Some of the people that you're providing interpretation services for are refugees, which I imagine a lot of times those people don't speak English, but then sometimes refugees are English speakers or they have been interpreters before. They're, they're coming with family members who may not speak English, but they do. Can you talk a little bit, we'll get into just a, a little bit about the refugee resettlement stuff, but can you talk a little bit about the translation element or the, sorry, the interpretation element of refugee resettlement and what goes into that communication?
1: And I'm glad you corrected yourself so you get bonus points.
0: Yeah, I'm going I'm oh. to be doing that forever. Every time now, I think translation, oh, yeah, wait, interpretation.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, got it. Good, good, good. So we do provide interpreters to our refugees as well. Obviously, they do require very specialized languages, like Swahili, Dari. I mentioned those earlier, Arabic, uh, Turkish. And those are uh, languages that are very important to the process of actually serving these populations. And so when they come here to the country after being literally perhaps in uh, camps for many, many years, and people think, and I know I'm touching a little bit of the refugee thing, but people think that, oh, it just get selected and come here. No, they have to wait years and years and years. And all those people get background checked by multiple. And when I say multiple, you're talking about over 10 agencies across the world uh, I think in, uh, um, in our country, like three, four agencies that actually do a background check on them. So it's not like they're just selecting random people to come here. They have to wait many, many years, many of them perhaps in their own country, or if they flee their country, then they are in camps uh, throughout the world. But anyway, so they, they have to go through that process. But when they come here, our work begins when they land here and we begin to provide resources for them, English lessons. English is important. Cultural orientation is important for them to understand how, how the culture in this country, how things work. Like, how do I get my driver's license? You know, how do I get a bank account? You know, as an example, you know, if they want to get services through uh, social security, you know, all these things, you know, we have to have, we have a 90-day window where when they land here, we have to provide those essential services right away. So within that period of time, they have to be, uh, have a job, uh, have a place where they live, et cetera, et cetera. As an organization, we are responsible for those families up to five years. But the essential work within those 90 days have to happen. And those in- essential resources have to be provided to them immediately it, So 90 days is not a lot of time. So we have to have ways to communicate with them as soon as they get here. So many of our case managers in our organization through our refugee resettlement program use our over-the-phone technology because the advantage of that is that they're remotely. So you can tap into them wherever you are, at their home or in, in a provider's office, etc. So that's a, one of the advantages. We also have interpreters that are in person and our interpreter, refugee interpreters are amazing. Sometimes they don't want to get paid for a few things and I'm like, no my job is to pay you. And they're like, well, they just love the families. And they have a connection with them because they perhaps themselves have gone through the system or have gone through the process. So they, they fully understand. And those, those individuals who are our interpreters are vital to the communication that we provide to our uh, refugee families because whether it's an emergency one day or the next day they have an appointment with a doctor appointment or COVID concerns, you know, we need to have in place the right interpreters that can provide essential information to our families right away. We also have many of them that are part like, we use like WhatsApp, or we use other means to communicate with their families. And many of the things that get communicated with them are in their own language. But the goal, and it's the coolest thing is that, and I'm the refugee youth program supervisor, many of our youth. I mean, you should see when they come here, they don't know English at all. And then a year later, they're just speaking like they know the language so well. And they're saying, you know, words that you would hear just a normal teenager talk. Just so amazing that transition and also that transformation, right, that they all go through. And I'm including our adults uh, as well, where they learn English. And some of them, or even learning other languages. One of our refugee adults, clients that came in and, and other day, he's like, hola, como estas? I'm like, that's not Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> so he's speaking other languages, and it's so cool. And I'm like, that's amazing. And they, lear- they learn English, they learn the language. All of them, all of our families, all of our youth love this country. And they're here for the reasons that you would bring your family to this country for safety, for love, because it has opportunities, they can fulfill uh, their dreams here. And they're just so loving and they actually provide back, whether they are creating a restaurant or they are have their own business or they're doing something within a company. They enrich that company. They enrich the community. They, in turn, become huge assets for our economy for our communities and they're important they become artists they become doctors i have one of our refugee youth who's going to school right now to become a doctor and i asked him what do you want want to do that because he wants to save lives don't you want that kind of talent don't you want that kind of uh, professionalism don't you want to come uh, you know have those refugees who are given back to our communities and they they're not just takers and they want to be providers and and be part of the whole entire culture. So yeah, they're an important part, but they're an important part that they give back, essentially, through their talents. Or we have a, an amazing, uh, right now, we have an amazing client who's actually opened his own uh, tailoring business. Uh, and, and Monday was his open, open house. Again, so businesses, they provide to the economy and they provide to uh, critical services.
0: Part of the goal of NNIC is to kind of establish Northern Nevada as a welcoming place for refugees, as a environment that people will be comfortable in. Kind of, you talked about the the global uh, engagement, yeah, like global engagement and and making the Reno area somewhere that is central to that. So I know that there's, uh, I think, 150 Afghan refugees coming to Nevada, and I think 100 of them are going to be here in northern Nevada. But there's like tens of thousands of Afghan refugees expected. So can you talk a little bit about why why northern Nevada? Like, What is the draw for northern Nevada? How do you engage with the government as far as bringing people here and figuring out how many people, this might be a little more in the the weeds about the logistics of it, but more broadly, what does NNIC do to shape Northern Nevada as a welcoming place for refugees?
1: We have the programs that we mentioned are exchange programs. We have refugee resettlement, and, and I don't want to talk on their behalf, but essentially what happens is that Many of our clients would go through an agency called the USCRI, um, and that's a US, United States uh, resettlement, essentially resettlement agency that has a network of organizations throughout the country, As being one of them. And they're the ones sort of that find places for these families to go to. There is sort of a reason why they send them to different parts of the country, whether let's say we, we, uh, there's a client that they want to send to a part of our country that has a need, a mental health need. Well, if we don't have a huge amount of mental health providers here in this town, that family might not come here, but they might go to Las Vegas or they might go to, you know, a different part of, of the country. Right. So they, they kind of have sort of intentional reasons why they get sent to different locations across the country. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's this, different variables that plays. That take part on, on, on the reason why and how they do it and go about it.
0: Yeah, I always kind of wonder why there are some cities that are like hubs for refugees or immigrants that develop their own neighborhoods and their own kind of areas that are heavily occupied by refugees and people from out of the country. And then we have Reno, which it seems like you're trying to you know make it welcoming for refugees. Is Reno one of those places that there's like a real draw or a real developing community. So I always kind of wonder about what goes into making some cities the refugee hubs and other ones not, and kind of where NNIC fits into that picture.
1: The very small answer to your big, huge question is basically, uh, is basically, do all resources that this family needs exist in this place? Right. We have a growing pocket of uh, our populations that we serve. Um, with our clients that have growing communities. And we're very, very excited about that. And I think it's beautiful. I mean, any of our families can choose to live wherever they want. Okay. So they don't have to live in those areas that you might have mentioned earlier, but they can choose where they want to go. If they want to stay in those areas, there's an advantage because there's a sense of community. Us as individuals, we do that ourselves too. You know, we go to places where we feel safe, we go to places where we feel we belong, or we feel good at, and that's kind of, in, um, in a way, sort of intentional, but it's a growing populations that are in different pockets of Reno that have many of our refugees are resettled to, but, but it's because many of them choose to live around each other, and because they help each other out, and they communicate with each other, and they understand things together, and they learn together. So I think there's a benefit of having them all be in sort of locations where they're by, by each other. And again, you know, many of them might, might buy a house, and the house is located south, south of Reno, and we celebrate that because now they're homeowners, and, and that's pretty awesome. And you get really, really happy when they start reaching different milestones. We have some that have graduated college, some of our refugees graduated high school. You know, those are milestones that, you know, we all – Who've been in this country for such a long time, I I myself, um, since 11 years old, you know, you kind of forget how to celebrate those things. Those are huge. You know, for a refugee mm-hmm. families to learn English or understand the system or understand something, that's a huge milestone. And, and owning a house, I don't even own a house. I mean, one day I hope somebody celebrates for me, but those are milestones that you tend to celebrate. But we feel, obviously, we feel more. Leaning on celebrating them more just because of the fact that they have gone through so much trauma, so many crazy things in their life to get to this this place. And many of them, all of them actually love this country because they've gone through so much. And now they're in a very safe environment and they're able to, to dream and have their kids dream and become something big.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how you guys do outreach and communication stuff. So I know that you just started this podcast that you've done a couple episodes so far, Diplo Chats with a Z. Talk a little bit about what the podcast is. So who are you trying to reach and what kind of information are you trying to get out there with it? And then after that, maybe we'll talk a little bit about just podcasting in general and like different formats and stuff. But yeah, tell me a little bit about the podcast and uh, what you're trying to do with it.
1: Well, I'm definitely not trying to compete against your <laughs> Amazing podcast. Definitely.
0: There's there's room for everybody. There is, there
1: is. Yeah, now in podcast, there is. No, and I think one of the biggest reasons why we actually wanted to create Diplo Chats with a Z, like you mentioned, Diplo Chats with a Z, the reason why is because we wanted to sort of spotlight the work that the Northern Nevada International Center has done over many, many, many years. At the same time, we wanted to spotlight and also feature many of the people that collaborate with us. You know, we mentioned earlier the Regional Emergency Operations Center. They did a a project with us back in 2016, and we wanted to acknowledge them as a very important collaborator to the work we do. And not to say that we might have new people that come through DiploChats that wants to talk about other topics, not to say that. But yeah, in essence, it's creating acceptance, understanding, creating uh, sort of like the diplomat mentality about understanding each other, speaking, listening to each other, which are traits that are really well forgotten a lot of times. And so we want to have, sort of have a, a place, and diplomats is that place, so we can bring people, we can bring diplomats, we can bring people that are able to talk about the important work and the impact that the Northern Development International has had over many years and we have data, and I said it in our second episode. We have data that shows that um, our podcast is being listened to it across the world, which is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. If your podcast gets listened in South America, uh, we need a South American uh, listeners, please. Por favor, escuche nuestro show. No, please listen to us uh, because we, uh, we don't have uh, people in South America yet that are listening. But in Asia, we get in Europe, Africa. Uh Japan, actually, and Germany came through, Turk, uh, you know, in Turkey. Uh, so people are listening to us, uh, the whole world, and many people have some sort of connection with the Northern International Center because we have, in exchanges, it's like, uh, has gotten to a point where like 400, 500, even 600 people, individuals per year go through the organization some way, in, in some kind of fashion and through exchange programs. And then obviously now a refugee population. And we want to also interview our refugees to kind of understand and learn their journey. So it encompasses uh, really our slogan for the podcast is your global engagement begins with a chat. So you're global because that's we want that slogan to really resonate because it is like to understand people. It begins with a chat. Let's have a conversation. Let's understand each other.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this podcast, too, is just have a lot of conversations. It's one of my favorite things to do. Favorite ways of learning really is by just talking to people. Yeah. I think that the, the podcast format and that slogan of starting with a chat is a really great way of thinking about how to learn and how to become more engaged and just starting small with learning from actually communicating directly with people for podcasting. I think it's always kind of interesting to share those conversations that are very often, you know, two way conversations, but just introducing an audience to it basically. So having the conversation where you get to learn and then making that available for right. people to listen. And, you know, even if they're not directly engaging, they can still feel like they're participating right. in the conversation. It's something I really like about the podcast format. So is that something that was driving the creation of the show is that ability to take the, the benefits and the learnings from those conversations, those chats and, Make them more broadly available.
1: Yeah, and and also to to your point, is, is really to have people have an understanding and connection with a global audience and global topics. Mm-hmm. We want to provide a, a little nuances where they're providing um, and understanding their journey too. You know, we want to understand our, the journey of our refugee population or somebody that we interview and and the connection that they have with NNIC and how many years they've been partnering with us or collaborating with us. You know, as an example, and there's more shows to come. So we're we're getting into the sort of weeds of of all this amazing work that the NIC does in Nevada. But yeah, and podcasting ha- was a great means, you know, to do it. I mean, social media has its place, you know, but podcasting has a very intimate space, a very intimate way of communicating because we wanted to provide that sort of that platform where you know let's just let's just have this very intimate. Uh, amount of communication and and let us, you know, li- like radio, you know, it's like radio for me, uh, I started in radio when I was 15 years old. So I think I can say this, but it's so romantic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so awesome. It's a great way to listen to people and and you're not judging them on how they look. You're listening to them. You're listening to what they have to say. And I think a lot of times we all need to do that because a lot of times when let's say we see something on social media, what is the first thing you see? how they're dressed, what they look like. And then your judgments become immediate. You haven't even heard this person. You don't even know this person, but yet you judge them immediately on how they look. And I think podcasting or radio has this very intimate way of of knowing people where you can judge them on what they have to say and their intelligence. And that's what sort of, at the end of the day, happens in a conversation, and that's the way I think it should be, right? Where you uh, judge somebody uh, based on their intellectual level of understanding and, and what they have to say. So anyway, uh, and you understand this, I know you do. And I think it's a, a very important fact to mention because a lot of times it's like mindfulness. A lot of times the word mindfulness, we we wanna be not ju- judgmental. And I think a lot of times podcasting allows you to not not judge, just listen and have a moment mm-hmm. of reflection. And the nice thing about podcasting is that you don't have to look at your phone all the time. You can just walk your dog or drive your car and go on a road trip and listen to your favorite podcast and li- and, and listen to people talk and, and you don't have to do very much. Just mm-hmm. turn it on and listen.
0: Yeah, I do think that having audio as an option for consuming content more broadly, but I would say like learning and being exposed to conversation and and learning that way. Uh, but also music and anything that you're listening to where you can do something else, I think is helpful to break us away from the screen obsessed world right. that we're in. And podcasts don't have screens, which is for me, like one of the best features right. of podcasts right. is that there is literally nothing to look at. Right. So you can do other things or, you know, you're even incentivized to do right. other things.
1: And it's just yeah. so awesome. And I think, I think it's really cool. I mean, I, I you know, I, I started listening to podcasts a, a while back ago and um, and I was just, so amazed how they're put together and you know your show has a very specific format our show has a very specific format we, you know we, we are looking at the clock having different segments and everything like that um, and we wanted to do that just to sort of create this you know and, and I love I love your style and, and your format because it's just you know you're just listening to a great conversation. And you can pause it and come back to it the next day or something, you know, and, and continue mm-hmm. that conversation. Uh, you can do that with any podcast. But what I'm getting at is that when you have a very straightforward or straight through conversation, you can always come back to it and reflect to it and then come back to it. So there, there's nothing in between that you need to listen to. But we wanted to, uh, some of our breaks, if people listen to our Diplo chats by going to DiploChats.org. Um, you can listen to our podcast, but anyway, so one of the, we have a format that we created intentionally because we wanted to keep the show under a certain amount of time. And we, um, we might go away from that a little bit, just to extend the show a little uh, longer in the future. But right now we feel very comfortable with the 30 minute format. Uh, a lot of people do things within 30 minutes. I know that when I go to the gym, I'm on a cardio for 30 minutes or, um, you know, or you are working out for an additional 30 minutes. So um, anyway, so people do do things in increments of time. And we wanted to create some kind of structure that way. Doesn't mean that they cannot listen to your podcast, that might be an hour or two or three or whatever period of time, but people still enjoy it. Um, But I think we wanted to create that structure just because we wanted to uh, sort of just, you know, be consistent with our format. And we liked it. We, we felt comfortable in doing that. And we have technology that provides us the advantage of of putting something together uh, from beginning to end. And, and we talked about this earlier, me and you about, um, and people out there who are learning about podcasting, they can reach out to you, of course, and learn, but you know, there's not a lot of post-production editing at, at the end for me, mm-hmm. it's, you know, straight through you, you know, you start the show and that's what we're recording and it's raw. I mean, it, the sound effects and all the music, everything is there and we, we don't add anything afterwards and everything like that. And and there might be a time in the future where, hey, we might want to edit something out or somebody said something that wasn't appropriate or something, we might do that. But I just want to keep things uh, very open and just have people uh, have a conversation with us and have a chat about whatever whatever we, we feel that we need to talk about. So, But I love mm-hmm. the, the features. So going back really fast about them, whatever the format is, I think they're... They're essential and a lot of people like them just because of the structure and, and you're just listening to voices and people. And it's like you said, it's like listening to music or you're listening to uh, something that you like, you enjoy a topic that you like to hear about. Uh, and it's very intimate. And and that's something that we wanted to provide. It's a place where we can highlight the work that we do, but also um, communicate the, the, the important uh, work that we're doing, but at the same time also invite people to to have a chat with us. Like with this, uh, diff- uh, the emergency response, we wanted to, uh, we posed the question, if you're listening to our podcast and you have, and you live in other parts of the world, what is your procedure for emergency response? How do you uh, do that? How, how does your country function in terms of emergency response? And we want to learn from people. So there's another sort of interactive, you can be interactive and invite people to be part of a conversation or, or, or provide their input. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and in, in terms of figuring out the right format for the right audience, it's something that I tended to like long-ish form, hour-ish conversations that are mostly mostly talking, you know, like minimally produced, I guess is a good way to put it. But I know that you have a background in radio, which probably kind of shapes the the format of the Diplo Chats podcast, right? That you've worked in radio before. So you're a little more comfortable with transitions and ad breaks and those kind of things. And for me, I don't know any of those things. So I came into the podcast world this. okay, well, how do I just do an hour long conversation? And I think there's different audiences for both of those things. I listen to some shorter form, some longer form content, and I get feedback all the time that an hour is too long. <laughs> uh, because I know a lot of listeners won't listen to a whole long episode. They'll see the it's an hour and they'll be like, oh, that's too long for me. I can't pay attention that long. So tr- like trying to find your spot of how you want to do the format, who you're trying to reach, that's a really interesting decision to make as a podcast host because you want to be true to your vision of what you're trying to do. And you want to make sure that the show represents the kind of information that you want to get out and that it's in a format that you personally enjoy. But then with any product, you know, whether it's an audio product or if it's anything that you're trying to make and put out there, there's always this thinking about okay, well, do I need to tune it for the audience or do I need to change it to be more marketable things like that. So that's been an interesting thing for me to try to figure out the format of my show and find the, you know, the value of all the different styles of Doing a podcast and and what you hope to accomplish with it,
1: yeah, and, and I think to your point, so you're right about the radio. So yes, uh, formats are used in radio. They have to you know uh, fit a certain amount of information within an hour or thirty minutes, whatever the period of time is. And so I have that sort of background in creating formats and and sticking to formats, and I feel very comfortable with that format just because it just. Uh, when I see you know and we have this little diagram where we have you know there's a break coming or we know um, our you know our conversation at the beginning is like two minutes and then after that we go to a you know sort of public service announcement from our our organization in the program that we do uh, programs that we do here at NNIC so so we have kind of that format but it feels comfortable for me but a lot of people to your point it's like you know this is your format and, and I respect it and I think That's sort of the cool, neat thing that you can create whatever format you want. You can create it as long as you want, as short as you want. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one time it might be 30 minutes and the next time you might have an hour show, you know, depending on how cool and interesting the conversation is. With podcasting, you have that flexibility of letting the conversation lead the time, not the time lead the conversation.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That is one of the main reasons that I do the format that I do is that it has a built-in flexibility around how long conversations go and kind of what direction they take. And I just as a person am <laughs> like like hesitant around really strict structures and rules and timelines and deadlines and things like that. And then I think the, the pressure of watching the clock, like I don't have a, a clock going that says I have an ad break in two minutes that I need to get to. The flexibility that that gives me feels like it allows me to have more natural conversations. Not that you can't have natural conversations when you have time restrictions, but for someone like me who's just, who gets anxiety around the clock ticking down, it's nice to be able to just throw the clock out and figure out the, you know, the editing and the formatting and stuff after the fact.
1: And I'm glad we're talking about this because it's providing a lot of people who are listening to your show. Uh, a different way of looking at it and different formats that they can create whatever feels comfortable to them and I think our human uh, nature is just to have a conversation and just whenever that conversation ends that's when it ends you know and I think Mm -hmm. I I love that structure Um, so you're not limited to like oh my gosh you know uh, we have two segments one of them is 11 minutes the next one is 11 minutes so we were sort of like hey you know so one of the things that I've done to sort of kind of go off to what you just said about just letting the the conversation lead the time, is the whole fact that a lot of times I don't have questions that I follow. I just want the conversation to kind of structure those questions. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that part of it where, you know, yeah, the time is ticking still, but even then, though, I, I just sort of go back and forth. It's like a dance, right? You go back and forth with this person to sort of have this dialogue with them, but I'm, I'm basing the questions based on what they're telling me and sharing with me. So a lot of times that makes people very comfortable. And that's another part too about podcasting, the fact that, you know, many people don't have to dress up uh, and look good, right?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's nice that I'm able to record my episodes literally sitting on my living room floor in my pajamas half the and time. I can
1: see you doing that which is scary. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, No, and it's cool. It's fun. You know, the fact that you can just be in in your sandals and be doing this, you know, sort of, you don't need to go into a studio and stuff like that. And, and that's advantage. And, and podcasts are remote. Um, If you purchase the right equipment, you can do it from your phone. You can do it from Mm -hmm. anywhere. And that's another cool feature too. So if you happen to be in your hotel room or on the beach somewhere, and you want people to listen to the waves, you know, That's so awesome. And you can do that anywhere with a TV show or a radio show has to happen in a studio for the most part. But with podcasting, Mm -hmm. you can take it anywhere.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that it is a very amateur friendly format that almost anyone can do with relatively minimal initial expense, with minimal experience. I have no background in radio or audio production or anything like that. And it was possible for me to put a show together just through, you know, a little bit of Googling and, and figure it out. Like the, the fact that it's open to amateurs, I think makes podcasting a really cool thing. And that it's a, like not a brand new format anymore. Obviously podcasts are pretty well established and growing. And I think there's a big future for podcasting in general. There's a lot of people who don't listen to podcasts now, but they will eventually they'll find one that is interesting to them or someone will produce something that is, of a genre that they like. I know there's like true crime p- podcasts. So a lot of people who are used to watching true crime TV all of a sudden have a new way of consuming similar content in podcast format and that brings mm-hmm. them into the podcast ecosystem. So I think there's a lot of room for growth generally in right. podcasting. I know we're getting in kind of like the weeds on podcasting stuff, but it's it's interesting to talk about this stuff uh, and kind of let people see behind the scenes yeah. a bit about
1: I think it's it's cool talk about that i mean so people can structure however they one i actually so i listened to uh, sirius xm satellite radio again radio being the keyword there uh, and now it's global uh, you can listen to it anywhere uh, which is really cool but they they have a show that they actually have and they, they're calling it the first podcast and it's uh, a show that uh, i guess one of the actresses as you all know lucille ball had a long time ago and and it was a uh, radio show on CBS, and they're calling it the first podcast. And many shows sort of kind of have that history. Podcasting is getting a lot of lessons from radio, obviously. But it's, uh, again, I can, the word here is intimate, but uh, one of the reasons they're calling it the first podcast is like so, int- I haven't listened to it, but I want to listen to what, what they have to say and, and, and um, what she did. But it's, it's just so cool that you're able to have this means and format where you can be very intimate and romantic and just, you know, talk to people and I'm thinking like when you have the the pleasure of of talking to people in their own ear, um, you know, that's sort of like really cool. They're allowing you into a very, they're, you know, allowing you into this personal um, bubble. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) Uh, And it's so cool that people allow you to do that in their car, in their headphones, in their head. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's so cool that people allow you to do that through podcasting. And that's kind of the magic of it too.
0: Yeah. What do you think goes into hosting a podcast and this kind of balance between providing information and content and sharing, but there's also, and not just in podcasting, but in radio or any kind of performance, there's also some level of like egotism or narcissism to be like, I am putting my voice out there, my ideas out there for people to to consume to value that there's this assumption that because i am the one who put a microphone in front of myself i am the one who should be listened to is that something that you think about or consider like when you started the idea of launching a podcast for nnic and Is part of that that you feel like you're a particularly good messenger for the kind of things that you're trying to say because the experience that you've had in radio kind of what goes into the personal decisions about deciding I am a person that should be listened to like I'm going to put my voice out there.
1: Well, you know, and that's a cool, cool question you're asking because I have always thought now it might not be entirely true. But um, I have always thought that the person that you're listening to should be sort of have a connection with the audience, be very personable, be dynamic. You know, through podcasting nowadays, is like everyone fits in the mold. Be whatever and think whatever and you have a place uh, and you have followings uh, of people following you. So I think, you know, it, it used to be where we could be a little picky, obviously, for Television or even radio, you sort of have to have that personality a little more, um, that really people can listen to, and your voice might not be annoying or something to that degree. But uh, with podcasting, anybody, anybody can can make it make it happen. Uh, and if people are interested in your topic or people are interested in what you have to say, I think you will have people listening to you. But you know, when you become a little cocky and you're like, "Oh, I want just people to listen to me because I have this message to say and I'm the expert," well. No, I mean I mean I guess you could choose who the expert is I mean yeah if they have certifications and stuff like you can get fancy but but anybody can provide their opinion and anybody could provide their thoughts and I think you know if you're uh, come from a place that I come from in terms of when I listen to somebody I respect their opinion and and respect their uh, you know, thoughts and everything like that. And if you uh, come from that point of view and if you just stand back and just listen, because I think no matter where you stand on things, politically, religiously, whatever the case might be, linguistically, you can still learn from each other and you can still learn, um, you know, different different things. And I think um, if you're a person like myself who likes to learn about people and likes to learn about what makes people tick or think differently or think about this specific thing, then, then there's a place for you in podcasting huh? and you can mm-hmm. you can get listened to.
0: Yeah, no, what I try to do, I don't consider myself like a, a personality necessarily, right? So I really do lean on the guests on my show as being the real draw for every episode. Mm-hmm. I try to position myself as someone who is curious and asks good questions and wants to learn from my guests, but I'm not particularly super funny or like overly dynamic. And there's a a certain kind of radio voice that you hear a lot. And I mean, I turn it on when I'm hosting trivia, I think a little more like radio voice comes out, (laughs) but I think that the selection of guests is one of the things that I try to look to, to compensate for maybe not having the most like radio personality or coming across. in the traditional radio friendly way is if my guests are doing, you know, most of the work there and providing most of the content That seems to be a good balance that I'm hoping is good for listeners. You know, that no one, no one, no one wants to listen to me for an entire hour. I don't want to be like the, the star of the show, you know, letting my guest kind of be the real draw episode after episode and kind of positioning myself as just the person who's facilitating that seems to be something that really works for me. So again, yeah, there's even room for people who are not traditional personalities, fun personalities, bubbly people, whatever, there's still room for them to engage in, I think, really dynamic and engaging conversations on a podcast format. So that's kind of where I'm trying to position myself.
1: Well, you know, I don't have a radio voice either. You know, I mean, listen to my voice. It's not like, oh, he belongs in radio. (laughs) No, it's like, uh, you know, and you just, you are your person and, and you allow others to get to know you. And essentially, you know, what, what really happens when people begin to listen to your show and trust your show and and you have very dynamic people, like you said, you don't have to be dynamic yourself, but your guests might be dynamic and you invite them, they forget how your voice sounds. Mm -hmm. They begin to listen to the content and they begin to listen to really the details and the information that you are sharing and they forget how you sound. And that's a nice thing about it too. The fact that, I mean, I, I don't have a radio voice. I have more of a face for radio um and and i'm fine with that you know it's like uh but i'm you know it's it's cool and i'm i have a facebook podcast so i'm cool i know but i think a lot of times too really people connect with you after you they listen to you for a little while they they look for the message they look for what you have to say and talk about so and that that's really cool or how you structure yourself or or express yourself i mean there's Again, you know, when you're listening to a podcast or even radio, you you sort of do have to create these uh, illustrations for people to really understand you, uh, get to know, know you and connect with you. If you're talking about refugees, talk about the journey, you know, how hard it was. Uh, we all have gone through very hard moments in our lives and we end up in certain places because of our, our hard work, et cetera. So I think if uh, when people connect with you through that message, they're like, yeah, you know, I've been through that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. And, and people forget about how you sound. I mean, I'm, I'm a different person where, you know, and we all have different uh, tastes for different things. But my personality, I want to sort of like, you know, I want people to hear me and, and like sort of my personality. And that's the same. Everyone has personality. You don't have to yeah. be like happy and, and laughing all the time to be, have personality or, be, or say jokes, but people just need to like your personality and you're like your character. And mm. I, I want people to sort of look at my character, my experience, my professionalism. I want people to love that be beyond my voice or, or my looks or whatever.
0: Right. How can people find out more about what's going on? Obviously, they should listen to DiploChats. That's on all the, is it on all the podcast platforms? Yes. Excellent. But how else can people stay in the loop on what's going on with NNIC? I know you said there's a gala fundraiser thing coming up. And just generally, if people want to know more, what can they do? How can they be involved?
1: Yeah, sure. So our website is NNIC, N-N-N-C, N-N-N-C-I-C dot O-R-G dot. And they can go through, we're part of the university uh, affiliated, excuse me, of the University of Nevada, Reno. They can also uh, look us up at unr.edu backslash NNIC and learn from all our programs, fill out a translation or interpretation request form. They can learn about our refugee population. What the event that you're talking about is our global gala. It's October 15th. People can get tickets by going to our website as well. And we do those sort of Reaching out events to engage, again, uh, the, the word engagement comes through loud and clear, uh, inclusivity, diversity. We want people to, to have a sense and to also feel the diverse amount of, of people that exist in our community. Uh, the, the amounts of languages that are spoken in our community, and just the efforts and love that all these refugees or immigrants have for this country. And we celebrate that uh, having our global gala. So that's October 15th. It's coming up pretty soon. Uh, so if you're listening to this podcast, please go to our website and buy your tickets and be part in, and learn from other cultures and be present when other cultures are present. So it's going to be pretty cool. But yeah, in Diplo Chats, they can find information on our website or just DiploChats with a Z.org. And people can listen to us. Uh, right now, we're still working on Pandora and still um, working on uh, Google Podcasts, but everywhere else, we're there. So it's pretty cool. And it's it's actually one thing that if you create your own podcast, as you know, is that you'll you'll find ways how to, you know, put your stuff and content out there. You know, and it's, it's pretty cool, a, a cool process uh, to learn and and be part of. And then when you start looking at your stats, you're like, oh my gosh, I got listened to in. Um, um, when okay. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wow, that's a big deal. <laughs> like when I'm, okay, so I'm like, you know, it's very far. Uh, so no, it's, it's cool. Um, when you, um, begin to look at your stats and, and, and learn wh- where people are listening or how they're listening or which, which things or devices they're listening and they're actually using to listen to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely fun to learn um, how people are finding the show, how people are listening and then getting feedback sometimes from listeners about what they like, what they don't like. Those kind of things are always really valuable to me, too. So it's definitely been a fun process so far, you know, launching a podcast Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, trying to connect with people in a different way. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah, good luck on on yours. It's a lot of uh, it's a lot of fun to launch a new project and uh, I hope people will check it out.
1: And also, you know, one thing that I would love to eventually get to talk to you about the word monetizing, which you know of and Mm -hmm. and people, you know, how can you monetize? Uh, Lucky for us, we are uh, supported by the city of Reno. And there was a there's a huge movement with the city of Reno in diversity and inclusion. And I think we fit that kind of uh, focus for them. And so we were we were very blessed that they became supporters. And in the nonprofit world, just to let since Northern Nevada International Center is nonprofit, 501c3 you coined the term supported by rather than uh, sponsored by so there's ways that you can get supporters Um, so that's a a way essentially that you can monetize through your engagement with that um, you know the city of Reno in this case or it could be you know another company that believes in your message or wants to be part of it and and Mm -hmm. you know there's people that wait to prove their podcast that it works and and that's really cool for us we were just blessed to not have nothing, but they yet believed in us. And they knew our organization. I think we had some credibility. So they're like, yeah, we trust them. You know, mm-hmm. they have, they're have they credible already. So, you know, we're going to trust their podcast as well. So,
0: Oh, well, that's nice. If, if there's anyone with deep pockets listening who wants to drop some money in my lap for doing Renoites, yeah. uh, hit me up, connor at renoites.com. Feel free to send me a check.
1: There you go. Yeah, well, just, you know, whatever, whatever. Or, or, or I don't know if you ask for donations. And I know a lot of podcasts, uh, get uh, money donated to them um, we have a like if you go to Chats, uh, with org. Uh, there's a little heart on the very right hand side people can donate to you um, and so uh, you you know this better than I do but a lot of people can monetize it and so monetization is just I mean like oh my gosh I have to work really hard to get a sponsorship no you can just you know monetize in different forms uh, uh, in ways how long have you been doing this by the way?
0: Um, I think this is episode thirty maybe so oh a little bit God. over a little bit over six months
1: okay, they see that's cool, yeah, for us is like the second episode, and we're we're floating on clouds um <laughs> <and> we're happy. <laughs> this is what it's all about it's like finding a place where we feel needed, wanted, heard, and if this is a format that works for you, then go for it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell me a little bit about NNIC because I was familiar with you guys a little bit, but did not know all the things that you do. So thanks for coming on. And I'm glad that we got to talk about podcasting a bit too, just because I could talk about podcasts all day. I think it's such an interesting topic and it's great to talk to someone who's launching a new podcast and kind of compare and contrast and learn about the importance of the format and stuff. It's really great to be able to have those bits of conversation too. So thanks for taking the time.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. I want to test this sound effect and see if it comes through. Can I test it? Sure.
0: I love you. Oh, we love you, Connor. Thank thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really great. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Connor. Thank you. Thank you for everyone listening. uh, And please uh, join us at NNIC.org to learn more. So thank you for your show. And I'm so thankful you invited me. So I feel blessed.
0: Listeners, thank you as always for checking out this week's episode of Renomites. And thank you very much, Manuel, for coming on the show. It was really fun to talk about podcasting especially. I'm obsessed. And being able to talk to someone who's also launching a new podcast was really fun. If you enjoyed this show, as always, I really appreciate any support in spreading the word. This is a really fun project for me. I get to talk to a ton of amazing people. But one of the challenges with a new podcast is just letting people know about it. I try my hardest. I'm on social media a lot. If you know me in person, you know that I can't stop talking about this project. So if you want to help me out and reach new people, talk about it too. Let your friends and family know, post about it on social media, spread the word. It really helps me out and I definitely appreciate it. Also, if you want to leave me a review, Apple Podcasts, it really helps people find the show. That's all I got for you this week. See you next time.